You're listening to the weekly podcast by Forest Hill Church. Here you'll find a place to grow in your faith, get to know what the Bible's all about, and hear what it looks like to follow Christ. To watch our services live or find the campus nearest you, visit foresthill.org. If you're a parent, search for our new Forest Hill Parenting Podcast and subscribe to get new content tailored just for you. It had been a while since I walked into a church. So being new, being alone, it was kind of scary because um, I was just trying to find a new home, essentially. I was uh, probably not looking for a friend, so to say, but I just noticed Christine by herself. I said, I'm going to sit next to her. <laughs> so it wasn't intentional at first, it was just noticing you being alone. We ended up sitting next to each other yeah. like two weeks in a row, so just kind of establishing yeah. something like that and being like, yeah. like meeting new friends, that definitely helped a lot. And that, that I think, was the Holy Spirit was a matchmaker. <laughs> we, sure. didn't, we didn't say, okay, we're going to sit. We just happened twice in a row, then got to talking. So then you connect and then you kind of explore things from there and this, it becomes... <laughs> and then at that like point, this. it becomes intentional though. Yeah. Because then we said, okay, we're going to... We're going to sit together from now. Since Sue had, was actually already involved with coffee in the morning, she was like, hey, I'm, I'm involved. In, and I was like, you know what? Maybe I should get involved too because um, it's just something that I just know from past experience that being involved just grows your community so much. And Forcels gives you the opportunity, especially with that Connect card, so easy. You know, you just fill it out and someone will reach out to you and kind of get plugged in that way just makes it so easy to get connected. I mean, I could see myself if I hadn't filled out that card, still probably sitting out out there by myself, like not connected with people, so. I volunteer with the kids' ministry with their hospitality, um, help with check-in for the new families. The coffee station is very easy, <laughs> but the main thing is you, you need to like people because that's a heavy, an area where a lot of people come in, walk out, and it's it's a good first step because if that's too easy, then start with that and then you can find something more challenging. Yeah. I think so. Plus we get free coffee. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was a nice way to meet people. We met a lot of people. Like you say, we, we know them visually, we see them every week. That we may not know them a lot, but over time you talk and then you become so your your Comfort in joining the church, in being making it a family, a home, you know, get solidified that way, man. You know more people, you talk to them. And I think what's great about Forest Hill is that they have a lot of roles. You may not be right for one role, but there's tons of other roles out there. And having a person there, being supportive, um, you know, directing you a little bit. So when I came here and finding Sue and just being able to kind of grow and see how everything kind of developed from that was so great to see just in the few months that I've been here how much my life has changed. Um, I kind of like sometimes have to think about like how much my life would be different hadn't I made this decision to come step into the church and then also get involved with the church as well. So. And the, the rest is just supporting like when Christine told me she was getting baptized I was so excited and I showed up with a little gift and I and I'm sure you didn't expect that, did you? No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's little, no, little encouragement like that. 
can sure helps. If we all do that to one person, if one person did to another, you know, this whole whole place will be transformed. That's awesome. I love that. If you're going to work in hospitality, it really helps if you like people. That's good. But listen, one of the things that is an absolute priority of Forest Hills, we want, to, we want to be able to see people connected, connected to God, connected to one another. And I love what you said at the end, that if we all do our part and encourage one another, then the entire community can experience transformation. I want to go ahead and put my voice in for the it experience. If you've not yet been a part of that, if you're looking for a place to connect to the vision of Forest Hill Church, but also the community of Forest Hill Church and growing in your faith, next Sunday at 11 o'clock, this hour in room 220, is the place to go to be able to get a part of, and be a part of that vision. Well, thank you for coming. It is always a privilege and honor to see all of your faces, whether you've been here for a while or you're brand new. Thanks for being a part of our worship experience. Forest Hill Church, one church in six different locations. Question for you. How many of you enjoy driving behind a truck? Nobody? <laughs> so, yeah. No me gusta for me. I hate it. Because, quite frankly, for me, i got to have the full vision. i got to have the full view. And so anything that obstructs my vision can create a little bit of you know, minor road rage in me a little bit. <laughs> I get really frustrated because I really want to be able to make sure I can see where I'm going, see what's ahead. And I don't really enjoy staring at the back of a truck for 2,500 miles or the license plate. And so sometimes when I try to get out to get out from around that because I want to see what's ahead of me, sometimes I'm not aware of the person in my blind spot. <laughs> that creates an interesting encounter at that particular point. And when you get actually in front of the car, of the truck, you realize that it's not the truck driver's fault that sometimes there's a cyclist or there's a driver's ed car or something that's going on. But one of the pet peeves I have is when you're on a highway that's set at 70 miles an hour, and there's some kind of construction, and you're behind the truck, a semi or something like that, and there are no lanes for you to be able to pass into, and you're behind this truck driving at 25 or 30 miles an hour, not knowing what's going on, and that can create a sense of frustration or anger or impatience or bitterness sometimes in the way that we drive. Similarly in life, we kind of really want to have the, the big view of what's going on, but sometimes every one of us experiences setbacks. But the way that we respond to those setbacks is actually what has us behind a truck. We can't see what's coming. We don't, don't know what's going on. And because of the way that we're reacting, it can create bitterness and anger and resentment because we want to see the picture, the full picture. And the truth about it is, is that for many of us going through our setbacks, our disappointments, we don't really ever get the full view of what's happening. How we respond to our setbacks is what encourages the quality of our movement going forward. Today we're going to take a look at a story through the book of Ruth of two women who they themselves had setbacks. They had an opportunity or choice of whether or not they wanted to get stuck behind a truck just looking at just what they only could see that created a sense of bitterness. And for some of them, it, for one of them, it did. But how to be able to move forward in spite of that. This particular message is good for all kinds of folks especially for those of you that you're in your situation, your setbacks right now or something's coming. I just finished a great three-week short-term group of single adults. And so it's interesting that the bulk of this story happens with two, uh, three people who are both single, either never married, as one man was, or two that are single again. So for the single adults in the room, I hope this is an encouragement for you specifically, but for all of us, as we deal with our setbacks, how do we respond to them in a way that keeps us moving forward? The context of it is said, the very first verse of Ruth chapter 1 basically says this, in the days when the judges ruled, famine was in the land. 
Here's a context. Last week we finished with Joshua. Joshua led the children through the wilderness, and now they're into the promised land. They've taken possession of it. They've made the choice that they want to be able to serve God, and so now they're going to possess the land that is theirs. The problem, however, is, is that in the process, they become prosperous, they become happy, they become successful, and they forget God. They actually develop disobedience, rebellion, idolatry. They're now worshiping the gods in the land that they were supposed to clear the land of, but now they're worshiping. God, in response to the fact that they have violated the covenant that he has with them, he disciplines them by allowing other neighboring nations to actually oppress Israel. After the oppression, while they're being oppressed and they're being enslaved, Israel cries out to God, God, we're sorry, we were wrong, we repent. God then raises up judges, and those judges, men and women, deliver the people from oppression. The people give praise and honor and thanks to God. They get prosperous and happy, and they forget God. It's kind of a wash, rinse, and repeat. The cycle continues with this rebellion after they get prosperous. God disciplines them, and it happens over and over again. Something like what happens in some of our lives sometimes. And yet, as God is doing that with them, the end of the book of Judges ends with this horrible verse that says, everyone did what they saw was right in their own eyes. Everyone lived according to their own, their own rules and their own laws. This is a context of where the story is. We don't know how far into it is, but in the story of Ruth, they are dealing with life in that particular culture. But it turns out that because there was a famine in, in Bethlehem, a man by the name of Elimelech with his wife Naomi left from Bethlehem to go to Moab, a city that Israel, Israel was not really supposed to associate with, but there's prosperity in Israel. And so he leaves with his family and goes there with his wife and goes there with the two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they go to Moab. Shortly after they get there to Moab, Elimelech, the husband, dies. The sons, Malon and Kilion, they marry two women from Moab, non-Israelites. He marries, they marry two women, Orpah and Ruth. After about 10 years of life there in Moab, Malon and Kilion, those two sons, they die. And now here's Naomi. She's bereft of her husband, bereft of her sons, and she now hears that there are provisions back in Bethlehem that the famine is over. And so she is on the way back with her two daughters-in-law to go back home to Bethlehem. On the way, however, she basically says to her daughter-in-laws, daughters-in-law, she says, listen, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. He's been against me. It's, been bad, it's bad luck to stay with me, so I'm encouraging you, stay in Moab. Go back to your own hometown because an opportunity for you to be able to find love and find romance and find marriage and a family, it's better for you there than it is with me. The daughters, right away, they're like, no, we want to stay with you, and they resist that instruction. But Naomi continues to say, listen, I, I, I am so, I'm too old, and, and are you going to wait for the sons that I might have and they, when they grow up that, that you'll uh, be wives to them? It says, it's better for you to, to be in another place. Orpah finally consents and says, okay, I'll go. I, I believe she's reluctant in doing so, but she leaves. Meanwhile, however, Ruth, the scripture says that Ruth clings to Naomi. And she has this conversation with her mother-in-law that I believe is instructive for how you and I are to move forward in life. And so, as we take a look at this conversation, which is out of the scripture, and the honor of the reading of the word, if you are able, may I ask you to stand. Let's take a look at what Ruth says to Naomi. Ruth chapter 1, beginning at 16, verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. 
May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Ever been at that particular place? In this particular part of the story, chapter 1 is about this tragedy and this bitterness. Where things have happened that you didn't see coming. Things that have happened that have created a bitterness, and you feel as if God himself has been against you hit after hit that takes place in your life, and it feels as if even God himself is against you. Not just that he's not even there, but he's working against you. This is what's going on in Naomi's heart after losing her, her husband and her two sons. Even though she's got a daughter-in-law who loves her, yet Naomi is filled with bitterness. And when she gets to Bethlehem, these women have said, something's different about you. And she said, don't call me Naomi. That name meant uh, beautiful and agreeable. My name now is Mara. Bitterness. She's behind a truck, almost doesn't even care what the view is. She's come to the decision that there's nothing good. On the other hand, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who also lost her husband, her vision is somewhat different. With an opportunity of being able to go back and create her own vision, her own view, Ruth clings to this Jewish mother-in-law and says, I'm not leaving. Only death will part us. Your people, your God will be mine. Only death will part us. And so she has this amazing loyalty and devotion to her mother-in-law. But the next chapter, chapter 2, begins with hope and generosity. As a matter of fact, the the last verse of chapter 1 says this, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. There is something in that particular verse that speaks into the rest of the story. They're coming to the right place at the right time. And then verse 1 of chapter 2 says this, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So here's the deal. They come to Bethlehem when there's no more famine, their food, but they're also coming at a time when there's going to be gleaning, there's going to be harvesting. And shortly after they get there, Ruth basically says to her mother-in-law, Mom, we got to pay the bills, got to take care of things. I'm going to go and work in the field. I'm going to go glean. In the Old Testament law, the Jewish provided for the poor in that those who had the means and had fields and were harvesting, they were not to harvest everything, but they were to harvest in a way that left some leftovers so the poor could come behind them and glean the leftovers. And so Ruth, this foreign Moabite woman, is going to join a band of people, and the Scripture says that she happened to be gleaning in a field that belonged to Boaz. I love that. Happened to. You understand there's no such thing as coincidence. God's in the process of doing something in this place of hope and generosity. So she's gleaning in the the field. Boaz, who owns the field, Ruth does not know that Boaz is a relative through the husband. Boaz sees her and shows up on the scene and says, whose master is this woman? And one of the workers says, well, that's Ruth, daughter-in-law to Naomi. They've just come, come back from Moab. And he tells 
Boaz a whole story of why she's there and says, yeah, she came, says, can I glean? And we said, sure. She's been gleaning from morning, hadn't taken other than a little bit of break. She's working really, really hard. And so Boaz comes up to Ruth and tells Ruth, hey, Ruth, don't glean in any other field. Stay with this one. Stay with my young maidens for both your protection. No one will bother you if you stay with my young maidens. And also, I want to make sure that you are taken care of and that you're provided for. Ruth is overwhelmed and says, why are you showing such favor to me, a foreign woman? And Boaz says, I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know that you have renounced your loyalty and allegiance to your family, to your country, to your tribe, to your religion, and you've embraced with devotion Naomi as your mother-in-law, and you've chosen to be with us. And then he says this, the Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then he goes further and says, listen, come and sit down. <laughs> come and have a special meal. I want to make sure you get everything that you need and that you're satisfied. You get the idea. Boaz is a little interested in this woman. And she does that. Not only that, he tells some of his workers, he says, look, when you're harvesting, take some of your bundles out and just leave them on the floor for her to find because I want to make sure that Ruth is taken care of. And so she goes back home with about 15 to 25 kilograms of barley. She goes back home to Naomi on her first day of the job. And mother says, someone's had a really good day. What's going on here? How it happened? Somebody must have been really kind to you. And at that point, then Ruth says, yep, I was gleaning in this field, and this man named Boaz showed this favor to me. And at that particular point, it seems as if this woman, who was Naomi, wants to be called Mara for bitterness, something changes in her. Here's a statement that Naomi says at that point. May he, speaking of Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So even though Naomi has been behind this truck of bitterness, in hearing the name Boaz, she becomes aware that God is watching out for her, that God is working, that behind the scenes, unbeknownst to her, God is doing something because this man is a kinsman redeemer. Here's what that means. Again, in the Old Testament law, a kinsman redeemer actually brought benefit to members of the family. In other words, if a member of the family, tribe, or clan, if they, had, uh, if they were murdered, the kinsman redeemer, by law, had the right to avenge the murder of the person who was killed. Or if a person in, in Israel, if they'd sold property or possession, the kinsman redeemer, if they had the means, could actually buy the property and possession back and give it to the person who sold it. Or if a, if a person gave themselves in slavery to a work because they had a tremendous debt and they needed to work it off, at a certain point, the kinsman redeemer could come by if they, had the wealth, if they had the wealth and purchase the freedom of their clansmen, their tribesmen, their family member. Or if someone died and that person who died had children, then the kinsman redeemer could marry the widow and through that widow birth children that by procreation it would keep the property and the name in the family the kinsman redeemer had the opportunity to do that. And Boaz was that kind of person. Naomi knows that, and she realizes that what's going on here is that God has not forsaken the living or the dead. So things turn around for Naomi as we move then to a different period where rather than just only hope and generosity, we move to a situation of providence and obedience. So after Naomi gets this word, she then says to Ruth, Ruth, got a plan. So now... Naomi's actually engaged in this process. It says, I want you to follow my instructions. I want you to find out and watch where Boaz goes to sleep. 
after he's worked, after the thre- he's been on the threshing floor, threshing floor he's going to have a meal, he's going to lay down, he's going to have something to drink. Watch where he sleeps, and then make sure you've washed, take a shower, take a bath, perfume yourself, don't go with work clothes, wear something special, don't show yourself to any man, just to him, and after he's fallen asleep, you go to where he's sleeping, go to where his feet are, uncover his feet, and lay down next to them. Very strange, I know. But here's a custom, that when a woman does that in that particular day and age, when she uncovers the feet of a man who's sleeping and lays down next to them, she's making herself available to him. Not only for sexuality, but also for marriage. And understand this, earlier on, Boaz told Ruth, your reputation as a worthy woman is well known. Your reputation as a woman of character is well known, and Boaz is a person of character. So no lines were crossed in that particular time when she lay down at his feet. But you got to imagine, Boaz went down to sleep. When he wakes up, there is an angel at his feet. And he wakes up and is like, who are you? Guys, what's that like? <laughs> Waking up and finding this beautiful woman there. And she says to him, you are the kinsman redeemer, and I am making myself available for you to fulfill that particular duty. Boaz is amazed by that and says, you've done me a greater honor because you could have waited and gone for younger men or different kinds of men, but you've done this to me. But Boaz says to her, but here's the thing. I know that there's a kinsman redeemer who's closer to the family than I am. After him, I'm next in line. So I'm going to give you some more barley, some more food, and I'll deal with this. She, they, she, uh, she goes back to sleep again at his feet. They wake up the next morning. He gives her the food and sends her on to take care of the matter. She goes home with more food. Naomi's like, what's going on? And, and Ruth tells Naomi what's happened. And then Naomi says to Ruth, Ruth, chill. Translated from the old Hebrew word for wait. And see how this man is going to resolve the issue. Chapter 4, Restoration and Redemption. Boaz meets at the gate with all the leaders. That's what people do when they're going to do business. They're meeting at the gate. And he also comes in contact with the kinsman redeemer, the person who's closest to the family and first in line, the man who has the first right of refusal. And so he says to the kinsman redeemer, hey, listen, Naomi has come back. She's got some property that belonged to our clansman Elimelech. She's willing to sell it. If you want to be able to have that, it's your right as, as the kinsman redeemer. The guy says, I'm, I'm down with that. I want that. I want to go ahead and purchase that. He says, great, but understand, you're buying not only property, but also the widow, Ruth, from the son, and you need to then fulfill your obligations to her as the kinsman redeemer. He then says, eh, not sure I want to do that because that might damage my estate, so I'm willing to relinquish that right to somebody else. And Boaz says, I'll do that. But now we have witnesses that you're no longer wanting to be the kinsman redeemer. I will be the kinsman redeemer. And it's ratified at that particular point at the gate that Boaz is now the kinsman redeemer. And the story goes on that Boaz marries Ruth. They conceive a child. And that child is placed into the lap of Naomi. This woman who was bitter for all that had happened to her, thinking that God was against her, and now she is holding in her lap a grandson. And that grandson in her lap garners praise and and adoration from the women who acknowledge that she has now been blessed. But even more than she realizes, because the name of that, that grandson, Ruth and Boaz, give him the name Obed. That's the name of the child. Obed will grow up and will father a son who will be the name of Jesse. Jesse will grow up and father many sons 
one of whom is David, King David, the ancestor to Jesus Christ. Naomi has no idea who she holds in her hand, thinking all this time that God was against her, only realizing now God was doing a wonderful work, and yet only later on in eternity will she realize the amazing story that God had included her in. Be very careful of the conclusions you make about God when you're stuck behind a truck. Because God is in the business of doing something far beyond what you and I can imagine. One of my favorite comedians is Michael Jr. Um, and I listened to a TED Talk that he did several years ago. And he admits that sometimes all of us have setbacks. And he has this perspective of life about setups and punchline. He's a comedian who doesn't want to just get laughs from people. He wants to give laughs from people to people. And he does that with a different perspective. And he basically says that for comedy, there is a setup. In other words, people get set up with a particular story. And then there's a delivery of a punchline where people get to enjoy the, the, the story. He says, in life, we have a lot of setups. Our setups can involve our resources, our talents, our opportunities. Sometimes we can be so focused on our setup that we just want more and more and more setup without realizing that there's something that those setups are designed to help us deliver. But we go through the period where sometimes we have setbacks. Our setbacks can limit our view of our setups and also prevent the full proper delivery of our punchline the good that we're supposed to bring. As a matter of fact, he tells a story about the fact that he enjoys a fam his family. He's got a big family, and sometimes having a big family means that there's a lot of expenses, especially for family portraits. So he decided that to be able to do the family portrait, he would get her all the kids, all the family, and put them in the front seat of the car, everybody in the front seat of the car, and then run a red light. <laughs> Two weeks later, the picture came in the mail. But they had to do it again because one person blinked, so they had to do the whole thing all over again. His perspective of how to deal with setbacks. He had reading difficulties early as a, as a child, and he would see font, sizes, colors, all the things about a particular word. He got that particular problem resolved. He reads fine now, but he says, but I didn't lose the ability of being able to see beyond simply just what was on the page. He says, that's the reason why I'm able to pull the material for my comedy is watching people's lives. Sometimes, he says, our setbacks can become setups to something greater, as long as we know why and to whom we're delivering the goods. Folks, for every single one of us, like I said, you and I go through setbacks. Our responses to those setbacks sometimes inform or dictate how we move forward. We can either get stuck in bitterness, we can get stuck in frustration, we can get stuck in the fact that we can't see the entire picture and therefore come to the wrong conclusion that God is against us, that God doesn't care. So what do we learn from the story that helps us to be able to move forward? First of all, we take a look at devotion. Devotion. If we're going to be able to move from around trucks to be able to move forward into God's story, it takes devotion. Ruth had that kind of devotion. I mean, she left her country, her religion, her gods, her family, and embraced a whole new world, but with such devotion that says, only death will part me from you. I'm not leaving. We also see Naomi, to a certain extent, was also devoted to Ruth, to making sure that she was taken care of. We see the devotion of Boaz. If we're going to be able to move through our setbacks, there has to be a practice on our part to be devoted. First and foremost, folks, to be devoted to God. Here's the deal. He has not left you. He's not against you. He is for you. 
it's in the midst of our adversities that we need to practice that we remain for God as well and refuse to leave him, but also to be devoted to the people that we love. So what happens sometimes when things get really difficult in marriages or families, the members vacate the premises or they decide that they're no longer going to be there. Some of it for very, very difficult, challenging reasons, but moving through those setbacks means that we maintain a devotion to God, but a devotion to the people that are around us, whether they're in our home or maybe whether they're at work or they're people that are our friends, our roommates. We maintain a devotion to what is right as God is leading us. But not only that, a diligence. There's a necessity for diligence, and that means doing the best we have with, that we can with what we have. Ruth, when she got to Bethlehem, decided to go to work. And folks, the scripture is very clear. She worked hard. I know what happens sometimes when we go through setbacks and we're stuck behind a truck with bitterness and frustration and anger because we can't see everything. We kind of shirk the work. We kind of decide to do less. We kind of decide to underperform. Who, to whom does it matter anyway? The example in the scripture is this. With all that you have, continue to do your best. Continue to work hard. Because truthfully, we work not just for the people that pay our paychecks, but we work for a God who has given us more than we deserve, but a God who is also in the process of doing what, beyond what we can see. So don't compromise the quality of your work. Simply because things aren't going the way that you want them to, don't start stealing stuff or time. Don't shortcut things. Continue to be just as diligent because there's a God who is also with you and watching and he deserves our best like the people we work for do as well. So don't compromise the quality of our work. Also, we see courageous obedience. Ruth de develops this courageous obedience because her mother-in-law tells her something really strange. I don't know that that's, a pro that that's a situation in the Moabite culture to uncover a man's feet and lay down at it, but Ruth basically says to Naomi, everything that you said to me, all that you've commanded, I'll do it. Folks, there may be some times in your life where things, God may command you to do something that is counterintuitive, right? Things that don't make sense, things that don't add up. You do the pros and cons, a lot of cons, but God has said, yeah, I get that, but I'm still asking you to follow me. As a matter of fact, here's the case. God does not expect us to understand all the time what he's telling us to do. But he does expect us to follow. He does expect us to trust. He expects us not to lean on our own understanding, but to trust in him with all our heart, with our soul, our mind, our strength. And he will make our path straight. So for many of you, if you know that God has told you to do something, and you know that it's from God, and you know that it's from God. There's no need to pray about it if you know that it's from God. Because you know, sometimes when we pray about it, we're like, yeah, I'll, I'll pray about it because it's just delaying our yes. Is this you? <laughs> I've done that in my life at some times where God has said, what else do you want me to do about that? To tell you, you know what the word says. I've already given you the, the command. Do it. Move forward. The degree to which we move forward evidences our trust in God on his terms. So if you are hearing, you know very clearly, either through God's word or through the prompting of the spirit, he has told you to do something. Folks, God's command is his invitation into his plan for your life. It's not a God who's trying to control you, but one who's trying to lead you into the fullness Courageous obedience, especially when there's setbacks, is very important. But also to live a life where there is virtue. 
a virtuous life, a virtuous reputation. That Boaz would say to Ruth, everybody knows that you are worthy. Everybody knows that you're a woman of character. Do people that live with you, do people that work with you, do people that recreate with you, do they know that you are a person of character? If you profess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, do they know you to be a person of character, a person that's righteous, a person who that won't compromise morality, a person who won't compromise truth, that there's virtue to your life. What I find interesting is because of her reputation and because of her hard work, Boaz noticed her. God always notices those who are diligent, who are devoted, who are obedient, but also who live lives that are righteous. Why? Because that is the end product for us. Everything that we go through in life is because God is seeking to transform us into the image of Christ, who, by the way, is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. In other words, what happened in the Old Testament as God, Goel, that's the name for the kinsman redeemer in the Hebrew, for everything that God did for Israel as being their kinsman redeemer and for the example that Boaz was, it foreshadows the ultimate act of kinsman redemption that Jesus Christ himself would do. To be a kinsman redeemer, you had to be related to a clan. You had to belong to the family or tribe. You had to be wealthy. You had to have the means to be able to take care of the situation, and you had to be willing. In other words, you could refuse, but according to the law, you had to be willing to step in to redeem that which was in bondage or that which was repossessed by someone else. Christ fulfills all of those conditions as one who is ready, one who's related, one who is willing, and one who is wealthy. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, we see this about Jesus Christ. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Talk about a setback. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, made holy, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. I love this. Who is it that Jesus calls brothers? Just the Jews? No. Those who are descendants of Abraham by faith. And Jesus Christ comes fully identifying with those who have a faith that trusts in God. Verse 14 says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, those who live their lives by faith. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ, son of God, son of man, steps into our story. He lives, he dies, he takes upon himself our sin and the judgment that we deserve from God, fully identifying himself as one of us, tempted in every way, the one who carries all of our griefs, our sorrows, our iniquities, our bitternesses, our disappointments, all of it. Jesus is extremely well acquainted with humanity. 
And yet after his death, his resurrection from the grave promises that there is a larger picture that God is painting of victory, of redemption for all who place their faith and their trust in him. As a matter of fact, we learn from the story that we can have confidence in this God because God is always working. Folks, he's always working. Look, I, I know that there are times that we believe that God is kind of like taking a break. He's on vacation. He's in Bora Bora someplace away from what we're dealing with. But folks, in John chapter 5, Jesus, after he heals a lame man and that he's being confronted by people who don't get it, he says to them, my father is always working and I too am working. Friends, God doesn't take a break. God is never just watching. God is never inactive. He's always working. It doesn't look like it. When we're behind the truck with bitterness and whatever else, it looks like God has gone mute. But he's always working, creating a different view and a different vision of his story in our life. Not only that, but his working precedes our problem. His working precedes our problem. In other words, when your problem shows up on the radar and you didn't see it coming, God's not freaking out. God's like, where'd that come from? I gotta figure out how to be able to fix this. No, as a matter of fact, those problems that are on our radar, they were on his radar centuries and centuries from the beginning of time. But here's the wonderful thing. The problems that are on our radar now, God had already back there been working on a solution for them. I know that may be hard to believe for some of us in our setbacks. But if he knows what your problem is, he has already determined the solution for them. He is working. He's been working from before you ever came along for your good. And that's the other thing is God is working for our good. Romans chapter 8, 28 reminds us that we know. I love that, right? Because <laughs> some of us, we have to say, do we? Paul says, we know that in all things, God, what? Works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. When we have the wrong perspective of God and we forget that even though stuff is bad, that God is still good and desires nothing less than his good for us. Listen, God's not working to punish you. God's not working to pummel you. If anything, God is working to polish us and to prepare us for a future that has eternal consequences, but blessings even now, because God is also working for his glory. That when it's all said and done, creatures in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, will all testify, especially to the lordship of Jesus Christ, but also the fact that the Father's plan, in spite of the, his sovereignty is amazing to me. It's amazing how God controls everything without violating our choices and will use bad choices, bad circumstances in a way that he still accomplishes his good and his glory in our lives. It's a coming. But we don't need to be given up. We don't need to be sitting behind a truck thinking there's, there's no other life other than this license plate for the next 2,500 miles or for the rest of my life. God's doing something. And by faith and gratitude, we actually can begin to be a part of seeing a little bit clearer what God is doing. Naomi had no idea. She had no idea what she held in her hand. She thought she was just holding a grandbaby. Didn't realize she was holding the ancestor to the king of Israel. Naomi is an important woman. And I wonder, at some particular point when she gets to heaven, when she got to heaven, later on after another person came, that they would come up to her and they'd say, great-grandma. 
We've never met. But my name is David. Because of your faithfulness, because you didn't give up, you began hatching that plan with, with, with my, my, my grandmother. I was able to be born and become the king of Israel. You didn't quit. I'm thinking that after that particular conversation, another person will come up and say to her, great, 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 grandmother. I'm Jesus. You didn't realize that when you, what you held in your hand was an ancestor to me, the savior of the world, your savior, the Messiah. What do you think would have happened in Naomi's mind if she knew who she held in her hands further down the line. My friends, you have no idea what you hold in yours. But God is working for your good and his glory. And maybe there'll be a time in heaven, I don't think maybe, there'll be a time in heaven when you continue in your faithfulness that someone will come up to you and they'll say, hey, William, Stephen, Mary, Margaret, Sally. You don't know me, but because you remain devoted, because you were diligent, because you were obedient, because you were virtuous, because you didn't get stuck behind a truck, the way you lived your life then changed my life also. And because of that, I'm here. I want to say thank you. And I think you'll have another person that will come up and say, hey, it's Jesus. Well done. Well done. You didn't live stuck behind a truck. You continued to hope in the vision of what I'm preparing for you, and now you see the full reality of it. May God Almighty, find us faithful in our setbacks to allow them to become setups for his good and our glory. I can see that. Can you? Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our short-sightedness. Forgive us for the way that we come to conclusions about you and reality only based on the limited view we have of things right in front of us. Give us vision to know, oh God, that you are intricately working for our good that enables us to move forward and to stop living stuck behind a truck of bitterness, of anxiety, of frustration, of impatience. And for my friends here, and those who are watching online, I pray that, Lord, you would breathe into us your hope, your vision. Remind us that you are the God who is for us and the God who is with us. And may we, like Ruth, declare with every breath, I'm not leaving. I'll cling to you. You are my God. Your people, my people. And not even death will separate us. Helps us move forward with that kind of faith in you. Not what we see, but who sees us. Jesus, thank you for being the one who 
is the example of perseverance, but also gives us the power to do that. May we live our lives in a way that honors your life in us and for us. Set us free. Set us free, we pray, to experience the fullness of your goodness, we pray in your name. Amen. May I ask you to stand to your feet and let's join our voices together as this song kind of chronicles the life of Christ, but also the power and privilege we have of being able to live our lives in response of praise and worship to him.